Welcome back, audience. Uh, I expect you're numbering millions and millions of you by now. Um, it's a Wednesday afternoon in a very wet uh, Wiltshire for me. Uh, I'm joined as ever by the intrepid Rebecca. Becky, how's it going? How's the week been so far? The week so far, what's today? So Wednesday. Um, it's been good apart from, I feel like I'm always a negative Nancy on here, but I got a text from Barclays this morning saying that my account's been frozen and I've got about 10 more Christmas presents to buy. Why have they frozen it? Um, well, it turns out I was trying to do the smart thing and transfer money over to a sort of investment account. And they thought I was clearly being too sensible, but they thought it was very suspicious. It does sound pretty suspicious. Um, <laughs> something I've never even managed to do, I don't think, transfer money <laughs> from a normal account into anything that looks like an investment account. Um, well, I'm you know, obviously devastated to hear that. I expect my present as such will be delayed. But um, a present for all of our listeners today. And talking of shrewd investments, um, joined by a man who may or may not admit to having the odd shrewd investment here or there. Uh, we're joined by a former jump jockey, but now... Uh, trainer Jamie Osborne. Jamie, good afternoon. Hi, Ollie. So, um, Jamie, we had a chat uh, very, very briefly last week uh, when I mentioned coming on um, or asking you to come on. Um, I don't know if all of our listeners are aware. Uh, some of you may be. Uh, Rishi Passad. You've got a... listeners, have you, Ollie? How many listeners? You have listeners, do you? We've got, well, now we'll have at least double the number we had before. <laughs> Two um, then. Well, because of your your kind of celebrity, your oh, reach yeah, is right. uh, is something that it's the only reason really I wanted you on. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, Rishi Passad um, did an interview with Josh Appiaffi, um, and this isn't about inclusion and diversity, but the subject matter was that. Um, after that was published, he came under a lot of fire because um, he suggested that the pathway to becoming a trainer was was blocked, and so many people turned around and said, "Well." why don't you become a trainer then? Um, and it just got me thinking, really. And um, I thought maybe we'd, we'd discuss the, the, that sort of pathway and how one does it. But um, Jamie, just for the people listening, I can't believe there's any of them who don't know who you are, but there might be one or two you know, from overseas. Um, how did you, in, in straightforward terms, end up becoming a uh, trainer? Um, well, I was riding and uh, I'd said throughout my riding career that I would, didn't want to train. And then as the end loomed nearer and I had to seriously consider my options, because obviously, you know, I think jump jockeys go on a little bit longer than they did in my day. I retired age 33. Um, it kind of dawned on me that I've got the rest of my life to do something. Um, and it seemed to make no sense to sort of, you know, I had thought I would move away from racing and do something completely different. But then it kind of dawned on me that I didn't really know anything about anything else. And um, it seemed rather a waste of sort of 20 years of studying the sport to then go and try and seek a role somewhere outside of the sport. Uh, I knew what I didn't want to do. Um, I certainly didn't want to train jumpers, having ridden jumpers. Um, so the flat uh, idea sort of uh, grew in my head. And then so the last couple of years riding, in my mind, I was trying to sort of position myself to make a transition um, as seamlessly as possible into training. 
Did you have any trainers in flat racing that you admired and looked up to uh, when riding? Um, yes, of course. And I used to spend my summers uh, sometimes working for flat trainers. Uh, but it was a little bit of a leap. Um, there were, you know, it, it's it's almost, it was reinventing myself um, almost in a completely different sport. You know, the only, you know, common thread was there was a horse involved and you were trying to make it run faster than other people's horses. And that was about it. Um, but it, you know, there's a lot of aspects to flat racing that was alien to me when I started. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, uh, no pun intended, but how do you make the leap? I mean, one minute or not one minute, but you know what I mean? You're, you're immersed in the jump world, a different time of year, generally uh, a different environment, different types of owner and so on to the flat, um, which is a whole, it's a whole different scene, as you say, a different sport. How, how do you come to terms with that mentally having been in jump racing for so long to then, to then end up in the summer flat seasons? Well, um, I mean, the fact that it was something new to me was actually one of the um, one of its attractions that it was actually, you know, at the time I was probably a little bit disillusioned with the jumping. Um, and the fact that this was horses, but it wasn't jumping um, that sort of, you know, uh, sparked me up a little bit. But like anybody starting training, the hardest part um, is finding clients to support you. So, yeah, my last year or two, it was kind of, I had half an eye on trying to round up some guys that could, could buy horses and support the new venture. So that brings me on to one of the, the things that did, that did come up in that interview with, with Rishi and Josh was a lot of people then sort of came to the, the, the defense of, of Rishi and said, well, you know, you can't just start being a trainer you need a yard you need a license you need clients uh, and you need money um all those things aside um did you feel there were any particular barriers to entry or or did you have any bits of luck that helped you make the transition quicker than one might if they were a bit greener um well, as I said, I mean, the key part to starting a business is having clients to support you. And I was in a fortunate position that I'd ridden for an awful lot of people. And uh, I suppose people knew who I was. So I wasn't sort of just, um, you know, somebody that had maybe come from a, um, a less visible route uh, to training. Uh, but no, um, I would have been one of the first years of having to sit through a two week um, trainers course in Newmarket and really that was the only sort of mandatory thing that one had to do to get a license um, you know that was part of the application that we had to go to Newmarket uh, for two weeks and on my same course I'm just trying to think who was there now Sylvester Kirk was on at the same time as me um, Alan Berry uh, actually quite a few people that were on it and no longer training <laughs> um, but yeah so we had to do that so we had to pass a fairly basic uh, horse management course um, we had to show that we had access to a little bit of working capital um, and obviously in order to get a yard you need a premises and I took a lease on Kingsdown where um, Ed Walker is training now um, but that was it, you know, if you just met those criteria, away you went. 
And before you said that you, so you were one of the first trainers that had to do that two-week course. So before that, they just didn't have to do a yeah, course. I mean, clearly there was a licensing process and you had to, I think you had to go and get interviewed and um, uh, BHA, uh, it wasn't BHA then, was it? whatever it was, um, had to be satisfied that uh, you knew what you were doing. Um, yeah, but th uh, before that, there was no formal course that one had to go on before you were licensed. Um, and have there been people you know of that had an interest in taking up training and would have been very good at it, but um, there were circumstances that prevented them or made them stop? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, um, you know, I think the working capital could have been a barrier to some people, um, but I don't think you even had to have, you know, you, you know, if somebody could find someone to back them, um, that wouldn't necessarily get in the way. Um, I don't think so. I think that there are very light barriers to entry. Um, you know, there are a lot of trainers out there. <laughs> um, and a lot of very good horsemen. Um, so um, I don't think there's anybody that I can think of that probably deserved to have a license that for whatever reason couldn't get one. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up the point of the horsemen. I mean, we, for, as you know, originally outsiders before racing league and all of that stuff and coming from different backgrounds might have seen trainers that generally fall into those sort of different categories, you know, ex, ex jockeys or, or people that you would describe as horsemen. And then the sort of more, uh, how to describe it, the more business minded, uh, maybe sometimes um, less steeped in the horse world in their approach. Do you, do you feel there are skills and characteristics that um, people from outside of racing could bring into the training game to bring it on a little bit or move it further forward than it is? Um, I think you've got a fairly diverse bunch of trainers anyhow now. You know, they've come from all sorts of diverse routes to getting there. Um, I mean, if you think back to my era of riding the most prolific trainer at the time was martin pipe um and he came from a fairly non-horsey background and he applied uh, a new way of thinking to it and broke all records um and i suppose modern day you think of somebody like uh, mark johnston who applies very sort of he applies systems um, to it and doesn't really train like anybody else and he's now the most successful numerically trainer of all time um, sometimes you can become too maybe you can become too horsey about the whole thing yeah, yeah I get that um, what would you say those sort of skill sets are that set apart the uh, the truly well I think the truly great trainers I mean apart from having brilliant horses and you know people that are going to uh, bring you a fresh set every year from the from the top um, echelons of the sales what are the what are the skill sets or the characteristics you say that sort of set the uh, the average from the good well I think that changes over time um, I think um, probably probably the constant is that you know they manage horses careers very well um, and they understand 
the quality of the horse uh, that they're dealing with and plan its career accordingly. Uh, but I would say that the hardest part of the job currently is getting your hands on the right raw material. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the, the, the best trainers are the ones that can attract the best horses. Um, I don't think there's a whole heap of difference um, between a lot of trainers. I think there's some very good trainers there who would all train each other's horses probably with roughly equal success. Um, but getting your hands on the good ones, managing a good horse's career um, is what sort of gets people championships and up in lights, their names up in lights. But, um, you know, so I think the key skill right now is putting yourself in a position that people send you the raw material that can be group one stuff. You know, that's, that's something I'm really failing on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Racing League has seen lots of trainers over the past three years. Um, and what we've noticed that is that every yard is very different. Um, what do you think are the standout points of the Jamie Osborne yard? <laughs> oh dear. Well, at the moment, we've, we've, I've had the worst year I've had in 20 years um, this year. Um, combination of factors, I think, have led to that. Um, but obviously, we're trying to build so that next year is different. Um, I'd like to think, well, our yard has morphed in a way into a yard that trades a lot of horses. Um, so I think that as a trainer, you probably have a simple binary choice between things looking good in the racing post table or things looking good on the balance sheet. And, you know, one of the reasons that we have embraced the racing league um, with such enthusiasm is that um, it gives an opportunity for horses that would be racing for a lot less money here so there is little justification to keep them in training when they're worth a certain amount of money to be going to race elsewhere in the world um, this gives us a little okay it's only a six-week window but it gives us a little six-week window where we can race them for £50,000 a time um, so uh, being involved in the racing league will almost certainly have an impact on some of our trading policies through next, through next summer. You know, there may well be horses that we would keep um, specifically for the racing league rather than take the money that is on the table for them to go abroad. So, you know, I think possibly going back to your question where I think probably we haven't got the balance right at the moment is that uh, we've probably been too heavily skewed towards selling our best stock and maybe there comes a time where we actually need to retain some of some of that um, uh, to, to race ourselves but you know our prize money structure really doesn't encourage you to do that. No and you mentioned um trading horses overseas but of course one of the the uh, the key highlights i guess for lots of people um the flat racing season are the various 
festivals around the world. Now you've uh, you're well known to have have spent a bit of time in Dubai racing horses there in the states at the Breeders' Cup uh, with with success with Toast of New York and others. When you when you're going abroad to races, of course the prize money is brilliant. Um, they're great trips for the owners, and you know really add something to the ownership experience. Um, I, I expect the training experience too. Um, when you were kind of coming from jump racing to flat racing, was that an appeal? The kind of you know the sort of extended network of racing on the flat outside, you know, slightly different to that in jumps. Oh yeah, I mean the fact that it yes. And, you know, I'd spent time over the years. I'd worked in the States for flat trainers. I'd worked in France. I'd worked in Australia. And, yes, the international nature of it was, um, you know, was appealing. Um, but, you know, um, they've kind of happened by accident for us, in a way, because, uh, well, take Toast of New York, for example, Um if he'd been all mine, he'd have been sold after he won his second race at Wolverhampton. Yeah. Um, and it was only that Michael Buckley um, was not keen to take the money that we had on the table. And we had a lot of money on the table after him winning a novice race at Wolverhampton, a ridiculous amount. And I was all in favour of selling him. Um, now, thankfully, Michael's decision was right because we ended up getting a huge multiple of what we were initially offered um, after he'd finished second in the Breeders' Cup Classic. But, you know, so that happened by accident because at every stage there was the potential to trade that horse. So after he won the UAE Derby, there was money around for him, which we were close to doing a deal and it never quite happened. We then took him to New York and he flopped in New York. So then there was no money on the table. We're then ruining not taking what we had after the UAE derby. So we were on a retrieval mission. We took him to Del Mar and he finished second in the Group 1 uh, Pacific Classic that day. And then all of a sudden, yeah, there's interest again. But not, not interest over the level that there was after the UAE derby. So we really had no choice but to roll the Breeders' Cup Classic dice. And uh, obviously a, a sale did occur after that. And it was by far the best sale <laughs> that we could have imagined. So, you know, that was, there's a lot of luck involved in those sort of things. If that horse came along now, um, the chances of us taking him through to the culmination at the end of next year, I think would be slim, slim to absolutely no chance. He would have been, you know, if he came along now, he'd be traded at some stage, you know, um so yes that's an appeal um to to go to those horses but the policy within the yard would always make it unlikely that we'd get to that stage and the i mean we 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 were earlier we we're talking about the characteristics that sets apart trainers blah 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 you mentioned the sale of horses there and you know the people keeping an eye on them the what's obviously been apparent to me and i suppose it is in most sports or industries but maybe more so in racing than others is how important the network is and i suppose that dovetails with your point about putting yourself out there and putting yourself in the shop window for people to then consider sending their their, their best horses for you did you find when you came from uh, when you first started 
And do people look at you as, as the ex-jockey or do they look at you as the budding trainer, you know, as you were building the network? Oh, it's, it's, it, the ex-jockey thing was, was a big help. Um, and I think I filled my yard initially through being an ex-rider uh, rather than a potential trainer. I mean, my first year of training was a disaster. <laughs> I, mean, with the, I mean, it was, I had quite a lot of horses and I, I think I only had a handful of winners, eight winners or something like that. And uh, so <laughs> we had a lot of we had a lot of work to do going into year two. And then thankfully we had a Royal Ascot winning two-year-old in year two. And then in year three, we won the Dewhurst. So, uh, but year one was a nightmare. Uh, you know, I had to then get results pretty sharpish. And thankfully in year two, it, it, it sort of took off. Um, but I, the business wouldn't have stood a repeat of year one. All the goodwill mm. that was there from the riding. I think that, you know, most of my clients would have run for the hills um, if we'd had another if we'd had another year like that. And that to a degree was my own fault. Uh, that was very much, I got it wrong. You know, um, I was slightly on, on a teach yourself training course um, and, um, you know, probably made a, quite a few bad decisions, but, you know, we had to learn from them quickly and uh, get the business rolling forward rather sharpish. Otherwise it was going to be dead and buried before it had really got going. Yeah, it's, um, it is quite interesting this sort of network thing, and I've you know I've spoken to a few um, jockeys you know approaching retirement age over the last few years, and um, a lot of them are looking for different avenues and different things to do. Actually, you know, surprisingly, not loads of them have mentioned training as the first thing, um, and I, I don't know if that's across the board because I haven't spoken to every jockey, of course, um, but I I wonder if if a lot of them maybe are put off by the the networking side because you know they've lived a fairly insular life for a number of years on the flat and lots of traveling and spending time alone is you know do you think that thought might be daunting that you've got to go and market yourself and go to all these events and you well, know you, shake hands you don't have to do that <laughs> no but after but if you were if you were going to do that you know if you were then going to go into training do you think the thought of thought of having to become that person becomes quite daunting Think the successful jockeys are already that person i think you'd be surprised how much uh networking they have to do to stay at the top and get on the best horses i think um no i think i don't think that's the reason that that some jockeys i, I think if you look at the trainers now there's a fair number of ex-jump jockeys successful trainers but there's very few flat jockeys uh, very few ex-flat jockeys probably their careers go on a bit longer. Maybe they make a bit more money throughout and they don't have to be um, quite as um, eager to build a second business. Um, or maybe they're just braver because of all those bumps on the head. Maybe they're just, well, just I go think for it. You know, you, do, you know, I was reasonably successful, but I didn't finish jump race. I didn't finish my jump career with a huge amount of money. You know, you, you don't make a, a lot of money, you know, um you know in that you know i mean i was you know reasonably successful but i certainly didn't have enough money that i could just sort of take things easy you know i had to build a second career and i think that you know that the successful flat jockeys probably do have enough money at the end of their career that they needn't they needn't take the risk of a second business you know um they sort of a lot of them you know they sort of 
cobbled together a little bit on our UK and at the races and <laughs> various things, you know, they've sort of pieced together an income after riding. And, you know, training is hard work. Training is a very different, it's, it's very different to riding. You know, when you're riding, basically you need a saddle and a telephone and a car and you sort of run around fields every afternoon, every evening, and a check arrives at the end of the month. Uh, running a training business is significantly more complex than that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't suit everybody. And, um, you know, I, if, if, I would have to say that if I'd been a highly successful flat jockey and made enough money um, that I didn't really have to worry about things going forward, I certainly wouldn't have become a trainer. What would you have done instead? Um, being one of those horrible outspoken ATR pundits, <laughs> just for my own amusement. Do you think um, your daughter, who's just taken up um, her license, she's an apprentice, um, do you think she'll maybe follow in your footsteps and become a trainer as well? I hope so. I'd like to just hand the whole thing over to her, yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice. So, what as, were your as thoughts? Boris Johnson, as Boris Johnson would say, oven ready. Here you are. Get on. <laughs> what were your thoughts when she decided to become a jockey? Were you very supportive or were you more sort of like, do you really want to do this? Um, well, she'd been saying it for so long that it was just kind of a part of her. You know, I mean, she'd been saying it since she was a tiny little squid that she was she wanted to be a flat jockey. So, um, you know, I have three boys, none of which would know uh, how to put a head collar on a horse. Um, and then she came along last and was kind of just a sponge for the whole thing. And it was actually quite nice to have one of the kids that was really interested. Um, and she, you know, she started through a showing and eventing and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, she did rather well, but I think her, you know, well, I know her, you know, she was using that as, uh, a route to 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 becoming a flat jockey um so look she's got started i mean she's a long way off having having become a flat jockey but she's got started and and i i actually really like it um it's added a new dimension to what i do um in that i kind of have the parental obligation to to support her and try and give her the springboard to get going. Um, I would hope very much that she would outgrow me quite quickly. Um, but no, I, I, I'm far from discouraging. Um, I, I think it's great. Um, just getting away from the home-based stuff um, quietly. We, I've actually asked a couple of friends to uh, fire me any questions they might have for you, yeah. um, one of the questions that came up actually a couple of times uh, was to do with the international stuff. Um, not necessarily what race would you like to win that you haven't won, because that's obviously a very difficult question. Um, we can answer that one later if you like. But um, is there a racetrack, um, A, that you really love overseas and just love going back to, or, and or B, a, a racetrack you haven't been to yet with a horse that you, you kind of really would like to participate in a race at? Um, well, you know, the year that we had in, in 2014 with Toast and he was going to Del Mar and Santa Anita, I mean, they're fantastic places. Um, where else 
well, I, 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 I did have a run in a Melbourne Cup in about 2006, but I'd been there back in the 90s and ridden jump winners there. Um, I suppose, do you know where I really love? I love Maidan. Yeah. You know, um, you know, this year is going to be slightly different because the number of carnival races has halved um, and it's made it quite difficult to take a horse out there for the duration and it's a shorter season. Um, so we're only actually planning to send one horse to Dubai this year. Last year we had four there. Um, but I really enjoy that scene. Um, I think it's a fantastic race course. The country I really like. I know it comes in for criticism for various reasons, but I think it's a fantastic country. The prize money is very good. They're very welcoming. It's a great place for owners to go. Um, so I'd say Maidan would be right up there with one of my favourites. Um, I um, I have to admit, um, having done the tour the last few years, um, Maidan's still right up there for me as well. I think that one kind of unique thing about it is, is, is almost its location in the, in the city or the Emirate is that the hotel being basically attached to it becomes this little village. I mean, if going for the world cup, certainly for that whole week and just the build up around it, it's just a fantastic atmosphere and everyone's pretty much in one place. But of course you've got the, the main part of the city, just a, a few minutes away. And of course, everything's immaculate and um, you know it's nice to wake up and look at a, an immaculately watered racetrack every day and not have any of those sort of questions um hanging over you about the surface and all that stuff um how did you um how did you find sort of taking your owners out there is that is that something you enjoy i mean obviously we know that there's a great social scene attached to that side of it but it's obviously quite hard work as well to get the horses ready, get your, your jockeys sorted, your riding plans, travel, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, look after the owners as well. Is that a challenge? Or well, is no, I think, I think Dubai make that very easy for us. You know, I mean, the logistics involved in getting horses there um, for January for the start of the carnival are very easy, very straightforward. Um, and as far as, um, you know, most of my clients love it there. Um, you know, it comes at a great time when you, the depth of cold, dark England, you can just get away for a couple of days and get a bit of bit of sunshine. And obviously a lot of the horses that we've sent there in the last few years for the carnival have been owned by Ian Barrett and the Melbourne 10, who are uh, not uh, shy when it comes to knowing how to enjoy themselves. <laughs> and so um, having little two or three day trips out to the UAE has very much been uh, something that they've looked forward to. So sadly, we have no horses going for them this year, um, but we'll be back. Um, you know, it's just a, a sort of COVID fallout reason that we're not taking a horse for the Melbourne 10 this year. But, um, you know, they've been fortunate enough. We've had uh, winners and placed horses there for them for the last two or three years, and it's been very enjoyable. And Dubai make it easy. It is a very easy place to go racing. It's a fantastic city. And, um, you know, it's sad with everything that's happened in the world um, that means that this year's carnival is going to be a little bit reduced. 
and it's not going to be as easy for people to attend and for us to get the horses there and race them in the races that we wanted to race them in. But um, I have no doubt that Dubai will come back in spades in 22. Let's hope so. Becky, did you have anything else from the youth of today to put to Jamie before we go on to your deadly nine questions that he's going to have to answer? Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Uh, no, I think we covered pretty much everything, to be honest with you. So, should we crack on with the yeah, nine let's, questions? Let's see. Hang on, you land, you're, you're dropping this on me with no uh, <laughs> warning. What, what horrible thing is this you're about to do? No, it's just a this or that game. So, I'll give you two options and then you just say which one you prefer. Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, question number one, Cheltenham or Ascot? Ascot. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Sunset or sunrise? Sunrise. City or countryside? Toughest one yet. I would say on balance, just countryside. That's quite surprising. Bar or pub? What's the difference? (laughs) <laughs> i mean hello i don't get that one don't see uh well they don't have pubs in dubai so i'll go bar yeah red or white wine red football or rugby oh tight just football and final question sprinters or stayers <laughs> what are we talking about <laughs> Um, I think on balance, I'd love a good stayer. Stayers, stayers. Yeah, the stayers are making a comeback. But uh, yes. until the last couple of podcasts, everyone had had uh, had chosen staying horses as their as their sort of favourite. And the last couple, we just had a, the first two people put their hand up for the sprinters. But I did think you might redress the balance of that. Well, there was a time. There was a time where. You know, the, if you had a staying horse, the only thing you could do is sell it to a national hunt trainer. But now there's a really strong market for them, so uh, they are—they are the horses, the desired horses in the world at the moment. Yeah, and um, looking forward to seeing how things pan out in that regard next year with the the next crop of of youngsters. Um, Jamie, we'll let you go because I imagine you've got things to do. Um, Thanks very much for joining us. And I'm sure we'll have you back on to talk in more detail about Racing League and other things in in the coming year. But thanks very much for taking the time. Well, it's a pleasure. I hope both your listeners enjoyed it. (laughs) I'm sure they did. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we'll see you probably in the pub over the Christmas period. And or the or at the bar um, unfortunately not in dubai until maybe early next year but we'll arrange that another time becky uh see you next week uh or actually probably sooner uh, have a good one you too bye <laughs>